Welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. This week, I'm at Chef Tom Sellers' newly opened London restaurant, Story Cellar in Neil's Yard, to meet a man who's known for breaking convention and taking fine dining to a new, exciting level. Tom trained under some of the greatest and most influential chefs, working in kitchens aged just 16 under Tom Aitken, and flying off a few years later to Thomas Keller's three-starred Per Se in New York, and then by invitation, ending up with Danish chef René Redzepi, whose restaurant Noma is hailed as one of the best in the world. Tom earned his first Michelin star 10 years ago when he was 26, four months after realising his dream of opening his own place, Restaurant Story, in the shadow of Tower Bridge in London, which now has two stars and is currently under renovation. And now there's a whole new chapter starting with the opening of Story Cellar here in the heart of Covent Garden. To say Tom is forward thinking and driven to create an experience and dishes customers will love and remember is an understatement. He has fun with fresh seasonal produce and his courses tell a story. And today I'm looking forward to finding out what drives and inspires someone that I see, I'll embarrass him now, as a bit of a rock star, Tom, of fine dining. I really do see you as a bit of a rock star of fine dining. You're raising your eyebrows now. You just think you just love the food. No, it's, um, I just laugh. It's a, it's a tagline that's been used several times. It's kind of the tagline that I guess the press and the media have held on to for a long time, this kind of rock star chef. But I'll take it if, if that's what they want to portray me as. I tell you what, I'd take it if somebody called me a rock star of broadcasting. Your new restaurant is absolutely beautiful. And I'll tell you the first thing I noticed because I've got one of them at home. You've got the walls covered in Connor Brothers prints with things like a clear conscience as a sign of a bad memory. They're great pieces of artwork. Are you a big fan of the Connor Brothers? Yeah, I'm not just a fan, I'm a friend. So Mike and James are amazing guys and worked with them for a long time. I find their work extremely provoking and they're genuinely really, really great guys. And I think, you know, in any world that's led by creatives and probably particularly art, you can come across people that probably aren't so welcoming and warm. Yeah, I'm really proud to work with them. I've worked with them for a long time and I wanted to continue that body of work over story to story seller um, because they're also in situ in my flagship restaurant and will feature again after the renovations. But most importantly, there's, a, there's an underlying friendship there and I think an understanding of each other's craft and creations. And you'd be surprised how many people love the work actually or, or want to comment. Well, I'm not surprised actually because their work is amazing. It's a big feature through what we do. It's really clever stuff. I was trying to read my writing there because I scribbled this down. I'm going to try again. Those who say it cannot be done should not interrupt those of us who are doing it. I love the saucier ones as well that they do. And I like the fact they do so much for charity. So my print is the one that they released during the pandemic, actually, for the NHS with a nurse on it. Yeah. It's pride of place on the same colour, dark grey wall as you've got here, actually, in my house. So I'm feeling very at home here. And I brought you a little present because I know how important food provenance is to you. I've just been to Italy and I met a lady who grows olive trees in her garden and hand presses her olive oil. That's very kind. So that's for you. It's not for the restaurant, it's for you, Tom. Thank you very much. That's very kind. I'm guessing you don't have many things that aren't kind of in the restaurant food-wise, so that's a little thank you for you. So tell me about this new chapter. I think naturally it's come from growth and evolution as me as a person and as a man. You know, I was very young when I opened my first restaurant, still didn't probably truly understand myself or the world. 
my world was and had been for a very long time, just, you know, immersed in the kitchens that you mentioned and the bubble of extremism of focus and hard work and dedication and learning. And and then I very quickly just stepped into opening a restaurant and that was a completely different kettle of fish. And then I think, look, 10 years on, I'm old and young all at the same time or young and old. I definitely don't feel young. I'm extremely proud to have owned and ran. And I think the first word being important, owned and ran a restaurant in London for 10 years and for it to have the accolades that it has. I was doing an interview the other week for a journalist and they mentioned the rock star tagline. And I um, tried to kindly rate him to focus more on probably how hard it is to achieve and sustain that level of performance and standard of performance over a decade. And I'd got to a point where without knowing at times I'd, I'd become extremely burnt out physically, mentally, probably either too young or too proud to acknowledge that or notice that. And actually probably had, you know, through that 10 years, I've had an up and down relationship with media, with critics, with press, with opinions. And I've always tried to suppress success. I think it's really important if you want to continue on the journey that you're trying to go or the trajectory that you're on or what you're trying to achieve. And I always had a plan and the story was just the beginning of it. But it also can make you a little bit of a martyr, I think, and got to a point probably through maturity, 10 years on where I realized that I wanted to challenge myself again differently. I wanted to relive what it feels like to create a new project from Nucleus, to go through that with a group of people that share a common goal. And I think also I was probably just mentally ready again. People underestimate what, what happens and what you go through when you put yourself out there, particularly now in the way the world works and how you can be so easily judged or Everyone can share their opinion instantly. So I've been quite honest. I think for a long time, I was petrified of opening my next restaurant. Were you? Yeah, I think I knew it was always going to probably be compared to my first body of work, which was always going to make it extremely difficult. People underestimate. I probably just felt a little bit worn out by everybody always having an opinion. And I knew that opening a new restaurant, that, that I would have to go through all of that process again, regardless of whether I wanted to or didn't want to. Did some big things in the last kind of five, six, seven years. I actually came off social media completely myself for over two years. I dropped my PR. I had no PR for seven years because I just felt that there were like a lot of relationships that I had within them worlds genuinely had like cruel intentions. And I just felt that it wasn't healthy for myself. I kind of had to probably rebuild myself to come back and probably just with, with growth and maturity and truly understand the landscape and also know that I had to be in the right mindset to open a new restaurant because it's no easy task so and also there's a big pressure on your shoulders I think when you're known for a restaurant restaurant stories now got two Michelin stars it has an extraordinary reputation but you've gone a bit different with this and that's what I kind of really like tell us your vision for story seller I love the kind of I don't know, it's got almost a slight Parisian feel about it. It's, it's got a very chilled, relaxed atmosphere. It's different, isn't it? It's very different to story. I actually started creating the idea pre-COVID. That's how long I've been thinking about the next project and chapter. And I think one of the things I knew was it had to be very different to story. But I also was torn, and obviously the name explains the final decision of where I got to in my mind, but I was torn between wanting it to be very different, but also actually kind of looking back and and realizing that I'd created a brand within story that actually I, I believed had a huge amount of integrity and longevity. 
And was there a way that I could continue that? But also to the layman, them know that this is a very different restaurant with a very different experience. I think mainly the creative side was born out of how do I like to eat when I go out if I'm not going to an experience-led restaurant, so that top 1% in the world. You know, and that was a lot about the atmosphere created by the restaurant being food that I guess you understand and is definitely product-driven and comforting and nostalgic, but cooks really well with great produce. And I think that that's where the idea came from. It came from me wanting to create a space where People ultimately, the moment they walk through the door, are infected by the energy that's created in the room. And that comes from, you know, there is elements of that that are design-led. There are elements of that that are stylistic in the way that you create the menu and the format. And then, of course, the direction, the creative direction that you give the staff in how you want the restaurant to feel and look and, and how you want the service to flow. They're all the things that I think a lot of the people that probably don't know much about restaurants, I think they think that we just kind of turn the lights on, turn the stove on, and you walk <laughs> through the door and you order your meal and it, it arrives. And you so don't. <laughs> yeah, there's so much more to it than that. There's levels upon levels upon levels. And, you know, it can be translated to any industry. You know, I think most people that are into sport, they probably think that 11 players go on a football pitch and they just try and beat the other 11 players. And I think we all know that there's a huge body of work behind that. And it's similar in what we do I think as a restaurateur and as a chef at a particular level, I think it's the same thing. I love the fact we can hear the team whisking and getting yeah. ready for service. You can tell what a, well, you can just feel already in a nice way, the pressure. There's a lot of work to do before the doors open where we walked in at 10 o'clock this morning to an empty restaurant. And even then it had ambiance and atmosphere because your team and chefs were getting things ready and you can feel the warmth. How would you describe the food that you're doing here to somebody who's not been, what kind of things are you specializing in here? The rotisserie chicken is something that has been a focus. I think obviously who doesn't love chicken and chips? If I ever walked past the rotisserie in Harrods, one, I could never get over how big the queue was. <laughs> you know, this is probably a contentious point, but actually a roast dinner, I actually used to love roast chicken over beef or lamb. There's something about it that felt very nostalgic and comforting and... For me, I wanted there to be a dish that people could instantly relate to. And then everything outside of that, it just had to fit the brief. It had to just be full of flavor. It had to be product driven, easy to understand, great to eat, all of them things. So the actual menu itself, I didn't want it to be too big either. You can go to some restaurants and you get halfway through the menu and you kind of give up. <laughs> so what do I have? I don't know what to have. It was a creation born out of where I'd like to eat and what I'd like to eat if I'm not at work. What are your favourites other than chicken roast, which is right up there as one of my favourites when you're not working? I'm a simple man from a working class family. So whether it would be a roast dinner or highly publicised now, my favourite snack to eat is beans on toast. You know, I kind of live off fruit and cereal and I work a lot. I travel a lot. So it's hard to eat properly is probably the best way to put it, but... I love all food, right? And I particularly love the culture that's driven behind whether that's eating Chinese food or whether that's eating Peruvian or Sri Lankan or whatever it might be. I'm a big lover for food. Food is also about occasion. That's a big thing that people sometimes overlook. I can eat the simplest plate of food, but if it's, I don't know, if, for example, if it's a roast dinner with my parents, then I'm extremely happy. If I'm slightly hungover and I go for a burger and chips with my friend, and like it hits the spot, right? 
And then sometimes when I get a rare occasion where I can take a night and I actually want to go and be inspired or I want to go and see somebody else's work at top level, that could be a three-star restaurant somewhere in the world that I want to go and visit and experience. So I think they're all led by occasion. I think as you get a little bit older, you start to understand that too. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned beans on toast because I worked for a long time with Chef Nichols from the Mandarin Oriental. I don't know whether you know David Nichols or know of him. I don't know him personally. Yeah. And he opens the Mandarin restaurants all over the world. And he said that beans on toast is one of his favorite dishes that nobody ever asks him for dinner because he's a high-end chef. And he said, I would be so happy to come to your place for dinner and you make me beans on toast. Do you find people get a bit nervous about having you around for dinner because they're, they're, wor- <laughs> they're worried that they can't cook like you can? Because actually you're right. It's about people, isn't it? And that beans on toast with maybe a glass of red on the side in the evening is perfectly nice. I don't know if people get nervous. I think my mother would say she does now. <laughs> That's um, hysterical. <laughs> but honestly, they don't need to. I think sometimes as well, when you're surrounded by food constantly, it almost being a performance and a standard. When I step out of that, I'm like the most easygoing guy. You know, I, I really like whatever, eat whatever, wherever. I'm trying to probably disconnect. You're so. making me feel like I've got the confidence to invite you around for a meal and there be, you'd be gracious. I was talking to my mom yesterday about coming to do this podcast and I was telling her about the candle that you do at Story, which is beef dripping. And she grew up on beef dripping and revealed to me that my great uncle Jack had a piggery. I mean, he was a publican, but I never knew he had a piggery. But there's a connection there, isn't there? There's a narrative with your dad. Your dad grew up with loving beef dripping, didn't he? Tell me about the candle and the kind of backstory to that being on the menu. Yeah, well, I think anything that you can give narrative to that then is emotive is more powerful. So... You know, I think a lot of the time when I'm thinking about food or or the way in which I create food, I think that is probably the starting point. I had an up and down relationship with my father, particularly through my teens, and his very honest working class views on how life worked. And a lot of that was instilled in me, particularly probably through work ethic and determination. And But I think as you go through them teenage years, you definitely start to become your own person. And we definitely clashed for a period of time. And My parents openly would say, and my mother also, were not huge fans of me going into this industry. I think that probably came from them not having knowledge about truly what hospitality could be, because being slightly uneducated in that field, and myself also. As the years went by, obviously, I think they understood very quickly that I was very serious about this. And there was a huge corner turned, and there were huge supporters of myself and Wherever I was in the world, they would come and see me and they would do everything to support me. So their support was particularly when I lived abroad for so long and had no money and was young and they were a huge support. As each year went by, I think they truly started to understand like, okay, wow, this is like what food can truly be. Probably is a similar stage where I was at. When I started to think about story, the beef fat candle obviously is something that It's probably my most iconic dish at the restaurant simply because it's so hard to be original. And I'd probably go on record and say it is original. I don't think anybody else ever did it before me. There's been imitations. I might be wrong, but I genuinely believe I was the first to go and do that. I think that's probably why it got the attention that it got. Something obviously I'm very proud of because my father used to have dripping on toast on a Sunday. And then I think I just started looking into the history of how candles previously were made from animal fat, not tallow. 
Oh, were they? Yeah, years and years ago, just purely because tallow wax was too expensive. And then I just started playing around with the idea and then it led to one thing, to a next thing, to the next thing. And then eventually we had Mark 1 10 years ago when we opened the restaurant. It's, it's, it's evolved a lot over the last 10 years, but the identity and the idea has remained. It's very personal to me because it has so much meaning behind it. For me, it represents the importance of relationships, the importance of guidance, the importance of determination, work ethic, remembering where you come from, all of them things, things my father tried to instill in me. And, you know, my father was very good at keeping me grounded. And being grounded is important, isn't it? I'm a Grimsby girl and I like to think that when you come from the North and you've got a strong family and where ambitions are different in the North, my parents were afraid of my journalism and broadcasting ambitions and ending up in London and then New York, all a bit like you. It's important and I think we're very lucky that we've got that grounding. Yeah, and I think people live through what they perceive you as and particularly with social media and images that can be created. I think anyone that gets to know me truly, uh, hopefully they'd like to think that them qualities come through and my parents played a huge, huge part in my career and upbringing. So, you know, I've always said, I think, you know, the two most important things in your life are the two things that you can't choose. And that's where you come from and who brought you up. Can't choose that. And they're probably the two biggest influences on you. How did your dad react when you showed him or when he tasted, presumably he tasted the beef dripping candle for the first time? He must have been... I'll be honest, it's all a blur. Is it all a blur? Yeah, back then, like (laughs) genuinely when I was that age and with that much responsibility and I can't even remember the first two years of Restaurant Story and that life. Were the hours just insane? Yeah, but I'd done them hours for 10 years before that, 11 years. You know, I was used to working it. 16, 17, 18 hours a day. So every kitchen I worked in demanded that. You know, but I, was the difference this time, the fact that it was all on your shoulders? Here you are, a boy from Nottingham, opening a whatever, three million pound restaurant. I yeah, guess there's a it, lot of weight on those shoulders other than just the graft and the hours. Yeah, I, I think being honest, like naivety and youth kind of like didn't even think about them things. I think if I knew what I knew now and was doing that, I'd feel very different. I was so blinkered and focused on what my role in that picture was. I knew if I did that to the best of my ability, it was impossible to fail. I felt that I'd put the work in, I'd done my time, I'd never cheated the game and that would come through ultimately in the end. If I knew what I knew now, then I'd probably feel different. And part of that blur, I'm guessing, was 16 weeks after you opened, 16 weeks, you find out you've been awarded your first Michelin star. I've read, I don't know whether this is correct or not, but I've read that you were on a park bench when you found out. Correct. What was that like? What do you remember of that in the kind of blur? (laughs) I'd spent my whole life obviously working in the best restaurants in the world. Back then I thought success was about obtaining things. I feel very differently now. So I knew that when I opened my restaurant, if I could obtain Michelin stars, that's the pinnacle of success. So I just remember waking up in the morning. I knew obviously that the guide was coming out that day. And, you know, it was like, no way can you get given a star after 16 weeks. How can they possibly mark you on your performance and consistency in such a short period of time? And I probably talked to myself into that acknowledgement of, yeah, like it'd be silly to expect it now. And probably fair. 
I knew they'd been in the restaurant several times. They'd announced once. And I also knew how much attention it had had from the media, the restaurant at that particular time. And of course, my backstory working with Rene and Thomas and Tom. And so I think I was kind of torn between whether to consider that it was a possibility or not. And I just remember that morning, I, I couldn't sleep in the night. I just remember, I remember that. It's a very insular thing. I hadn't really spoken to anyone about it. I hadn't spoken to my parents about it. I hadn't really spoken to my team about it because I felt like I didn't want to make it a focus point. And then I just, yeah, I sat on a park bench. And back then you found out through Twitter, there was no awards like they do now, the grand ceremony. And I missed all that. I just kept refreshing Twitter. And then my agent at the time was messaging me saying, how'd you feel, et cetera, et cetera. And then it just came through on Twitter and it was a very personal moment, I think, for myself because I think about 16 years old starting to work for Tom Akins and the hours, the sacrifice, the self-belief, the knockbacks, all the things that I'd been through, like so many things. The amount of times I thought about quitting, things I've been through in other kitchens, you know, everything. So then obviously when it comes, I guess, I don't know if it's relief. Like people will say, oh, did you feel relieved? I don't know if it's relief. It's a very hard thing to explain. It was extremely insular for me. But I was also extremely young and I probably didn't really understand how to deal with it. So I just went back to work and was like, I suppressed it. I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, this is the beginning of the journey, not the end. I was so hell bent on that. I was so blinkered, literally like, I couldn't see anything around me. That's what I thought then at that period of my life. That's what success was. And how does that differ now? How do you measure success? It's not by things that you obtain. It's about the relationships you have with yourself, with your peers, with your family and loving your body of work and giving your all to that and having purpose around what you do. I, I don't think it's about what you obtain from it. I've been extremely fortunate to have obtained what I have and I take that very seriously because I believe I have a responsibility to the guide, I have a responsibility to my guests, I have a responsibility to my staff to obtain that standard of performance and be the driving force to continue that forward. But it's not a driver anymore for me to be like, I need to obtain this to mark myself successful. I think that comes as well with getting a bit older and I sit here and I've got socks your age, so I'm a lot older than you are, Chef. But I think it also comes with a bit of wisdom and each day for me is important and it's about the quality of the day and it's simple, simple pleasures yeah. for me in life. I don't have that drive to get materialistic success particularly not that I massively had it in the old days but I do think you change as you get older and wiser and even though you're still really young at what 36 mid-30s yeah you've you're probably an old head on young shoulders because you started so young I think 10 years in this game owning and running a business I try and translate to probably some of my younger cooks here. There's a big difference between being a chef in situ in a restaurant and then owning and running one, as well as being the chef. They're worlds apart. But I wouldn't change it because ultimately I always wanted to be a master of my own destiny. I wanted the autonomy. I wanted the responsibility. I wanted to take all of that on. A lot of growth has happened and, and there's certain huge things that happened through that time, obviously with COVID and pandemics and sorts of things that have probably shaped where I find myself today, um, things that I couldn't control. But the day starts and the day ends and you go again. And I just feel I have a responsibility to myself to give my all to the people that either decide to want to come and work alongside me or the people that decide that they want to come and dine in my restaurant. I wake up every day with that responsibility and I've always given everything I can of myself. 
Tell me, Tom, where did this love come from? Because at 16, you were in Tom Aitken's kitchen. You were very, very young. Where did that love of food come from, the love of cooking, or the knowledge that this is what you wanted to do? Previous to that, I'd always played sport at a fairly high level, and I think that there was a lot of transferable skills in terms of a team working to a common goal, discipline, structure. When I fell into kitchens, I actually fell in love with the environment first over food itself the fast-paced volatile nature of a high-performing kitchen particularly back then they were more that way things things have changed now and for the better it just turned me on in the sense of i just felt like this is where i belong probably needed discipline at that point in my life as well kind of left home in a way that was like okay well i'm just gonna go do what i want to do and i landed to somewhere and i felt at home and i felt like i belonged here and i was fortunate most chefs I worked for saw something or I made an impression because a lot of them gave me their time. And Tom was one of them, particularly at that age as well. He gave me a lot of his time. It was hard on me as well. And he pushed me. I learned what boundaries were with him in terms of there's tired and then there's tired and there's focus and then there's focused and there's all of these things and there's working hard and then there's working hard. And I have a lot of people to thank along the way in my journey that invested into me, even at a small percentage. And then, of course, obviously the food comes hand in hand. But, you know, I, I was cooking scallops in a two Michelin star restaurant in London before I w- I'd eaten one. <laughs> right. Like, that's the truth. You know, I didn't grow up eating scallops and caviar and foie gras. So, um, you know, it wasn't like I had this big love for food. My mother always cooked at home, but it would have been, you know, very you know, very humble family-led food, with, you know, cottage pie or... Meat and two veg Yeah, or whatever, whatever it might be, yeah. you know. My mother always cooked at home and now I understand the value of that too because she also worked a full-time job. So to do that and then come home and cook for the family every night. My father worked away a lot and was always working late, so wasn't around so often. It was me, my brother and my sister. So when I think about the investment that she put into that now, I don't want to sound condescending, but, you know, it's commendable, you know, to be able to do that and work a 12-hour day and come home and do that and do it every day. It's stuff, though, again, isn't it, that we don't realise really when we're growing up. I look back and realise my mum worked three jobs at one point. Yeah. And not once did I felt we were short of anything. And then she cooked tea every night and and homemade. And My mum always used to get upset when we didn't sit at the dinner table. You know when you get to that age, you know, oh, can I eat it in my room or can I eat it in the lounge because there's something on the TV or whatever. She got to a point where she kind of gave up with three teenagers and was like, well, eat it where you want. But she would always sit at the dinner table. And I realized that, you know, we were, my siblings were quite close in age, but we were all doing our own activities in our own bubbles with our own friends. And it's probably the only time we ever really sat down as a family. You know, food brought us together. That probably brought so much joy to my mum. But I think when you're young and that age, you, you just goes over your head right you just don't appreciate it and I look back now and I, I, I truly understand and I watch so many people that come to my restaurant particularly probably at Story Moore is such an occasion-led restaurant people come there whether it's anniversaries graduations birthdays you know something important within the family and to be able to share their moments with them and hopefully provide something to them that makes it extra special or extra memorable is probably something that I hold really close to myself now now, I always remind my staff that, particularly when we were at Story, most people have waited a long time to get a reservation. I always used to talk about an afternoon briefing when we were talking about the guests that were coming that evening. I was like, they're at home right now, getting ready, having a shower, excited, 
we have a responsibility to give the best version of ourselves to them. That's a nice feeling. I, the expectation thing can bear heavy sometimes as well. You know, obviously, they have an expectation. It's always nice when you when you over exceed an expectation and people don't really know what they're walking into. But when people have waited six months to get a reservation and then they pin stars on you, it's like you're at the platform now and you have to deliver. So it's a different feeling. Well, you're two stars now and there's only 10 tables. So there's a real intimacy about your original restaurant, isn't there, which is closed at the minute and being renovated. Just going back to chefs, so you've said there what Tom taught you. And then just a few years, while you were still a teenager, you headed off to New York and you worked with the legend that is Thomas Keller in America. How was he different? How's his kitchen different? And what kind of lessons do you think you learned there? His decorum, his like moral compass, his integrity is, and his humility. I couldn't speak any more highly of Thomas Keller. You know, he... Legend is a word that's thrown around a lot, but for me, he truly is a a legend as a chef and as a man. And I think for me, he's top five chefs ever in the world. And how did he elevate you? Was it the cooking that he taught you or other disciplines in your world? Yeah, I think other disciplines. I think I became a man in America. I started to understand people's skills and how to talk to your peers, how to carry yourself in and out of the kitchen, the level of responsibility you have to yourself. His work culture that he created and the environment that he created, honestly, it's like second to none. The standard of performance is so high, you're nervous about falling short of that for yourself. When I stepped into his kitchen, I genuinely felt inferior all the time. And that was just through the environment he created, not because people made me feel that way just genuinely felt like, wow, like this is the top level. At the time, I think per se, I was 18, 19 years old. Tom had spoken with Thomas and yeah, I just, he's just a very special man. And my fondest memories and times in any kitchen were, were, were with him in his kitchen. And that probably says everything. You know, I, I, there's so many things that we do now even today here, the systems we have in place, some of the methodology, you know, it's all influenced by him. And he influenced the whole generation of cooks. And for me, he's top five in the world. And I, I'm extremely proud to have worked with him in that time, in that period of time. And, uh, you know, I, I wear it like a badge of honor, genuinely. I'm, you know, I feel, I feel very lucky that I worked there and with that alumni of chefs that work with him. And I feel extremely lucky. And was it in those days in Thomas's kitchen where your dreams started to form about opening and having your own restaurant? That had already been formed. Really? Yeah, I think you have to have a plan, otherwise what you're doing. I decided that this was what I was going to do. When I was working 112 hours a week at Tom Akins, I decided that I'm going to be a chef. And like nothing just happens. You have to make it happen. Like anyone that has this idea of like, well, if I just go along day by day and it's going to happen, it's just, you have to manifest it. You have to believe it yourself. It all starts with you internally. And I would say that to any young professional now, if you genuinely want to make it in whatever field you're in, you have to have a plan and you have to go after it. And you have to, no matter what's put in front of you, you have to not let barriers stop you. You have to keep going because you'll get thousands of knockbacks. I had thousands of knockbacks and times where I felt that it wasn't going to happen. Or it wasn't going to come or, you know, had I made the wrong decisions. I failed all the time. I, you know, I made mistakes every day. I think what was important is how you learn from them. 
So no, that had happened way before. My time at Thomas's was just an extreme amount of learning. It was more about how do I get a group of people, if I'm going to open a restaurant, particularly at the age I did, how am I going to get a group of people where predominantly probably 80, 90% of them are older than me? How am I going to get them to want to follow me and share a common goal and then people skills, that like level of empathy I'm going to need to show, the culture in which I need to create, all of them things. I think that was probably what I was thinking about mostly when I was working with Thomas. He was a huge influence in how I structured my internal workings of my environment and kitchen and restaurant. And then you went to René, yeah. another one of the finest chefs in the world. What did you learn there in a nutshell? What was your experience with him like? I talk about these top five chefs in the world who I genuinely believe are the top five. René's also in there. There's a few more like Heston and, and there's reasons that I put them in that. They shaped food and they shaped the future of food. And obviously René was one of them. What did I learn mainly under him and working at Noma at that time was that he was so uncompromising in his vision. For me, it almost edged on like madness. Every chef in the world, knowingly or unknowingly, were influenced by René. Really? Yeah, 100%. They might not admit it. At one point, everybody in the world was looking to him of how they could progress their food. And that all came from him being so unbelievably uncompromising around this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. For example, no citrus grows in Denmark. So he was like, okay, we need acidity in our food, but we have to find a different way. So whether that's through herbs, through vinegars, through preserves, he created a whole new food movement that then everybody picked up on. Everybody. There's hundreds of restaurants right now in the UK that never ever worked at Noma, probably haven't even stepped foot in Denmark, that have read his book or would have been influenced by what he was doing 15 years ago. I was obviously fortunate enough to stand alongside him for a period of time. He has the mind of a genius, for certain, because the way he looks at food, the way his mind works, I never witnessed anything like it before. But I think that also comes with an extremely complex human and character, which I found difficult to work with at times. I think particularly as well where I was at my career, I'd worked in very good restaurants previously, so I was more rounded. I couldn't be influenced as easily. So I think there was moments where there was a clash with that. And I think also I'd started to decide in my own head, like, okay, the next stop for me is my own restaurant. Whether I'm 23, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, the next stop for me will be my restaurant. But I think he gave me that belief underhandedly. I watched him and was like, if he can do this, then why can't I go and do what I want to go and do? And they must be really pleased for you, are they? Your mentors of your um, earlier days, I, I would hope anyway. I think like any industry, it can be prickly at times. I'd like to think they are. I still have pretty open relationships with them all and conversations. But I also had to focus on my job and you can't worry about what everybody's going to think or whether they're happy for you or not. The wheels on the bus go round and round. I'd like to think now the one thing that they can't is undeniable is that I said I was going to go and do what, what I've done and I've done it. And I was uncompromising in that in myself. But yeah, they all played a huge part in different ways in influencing the chef that I became, probably the man that I became. Rene Genius was probably the tipping point for me to be like, if he can go and do this, then why can't I? We started our conversation talking about art and 
the Connor Brothers' beautiful pieces on your wall. So let's end the conversation talking about art. Much of your food, particularly at Restaurant Story, looks like art. I mean, there's a real beauty to it. I follow you on Instagram and just get my mouth salivating when I look at some of the dishes that you serve. Where does that artistic streak come from, Tom? Is that something you've had to learn or was there a natural vision? You are creating art on the plate. But I'm going to be controversial because I don't think it is. Go on then, you don't. Go on. But it looks so beautiful. Yeah, but art is only art when it serves no purpose other than the eye of the beholder that deems it beautiful, in my opinion. Food is most definitely not art. And I think that the moment that you forget that or you try and make it that, you forget the actual true purpose of what feeding someone is and what it's for. Am I conscious about how my food looks? Yes, of course, because the layman will eat with their eyes. What really matters and what really counts is the provenance behind it, the heritage, the history, the training, the craft, and what it tastes like. Because long after you've seen and looked at something, you remember how it tastes. 100% that lasts a lifetime longer than what it looks like visually. The visual part for me always comes at the back end. So I never start with an idea of how it's going to look, ever. Not always been that way. I think, again, probably come through growth. Do you start with the ingredients and great tasty ingredients? No, I just start with an idea normally. It can be anything. It can be a colour. can see something. I can go to a gallery and see a particular thing and just that can start something in my mind. Or it can be something nostalgic, like the marmalade sandwich with Paddington, right? Or whatever it might be. That process for me then can be maybe internally, I won't say anything to anyone and that may be like a four, five, six, seven week thing where I'm just thinking about it. Or it might be a two day thing. Like I have a lot of friends in music and Ed Sheeran, for example, sometimes he'll write seven songs in a day and then sometimes he'll write one song in a year. And I think it's where you are in your own personal growth and where you are mentally. And that's a lot of things that people don't understand. It depends where you are, how you feel. Are you in love? Are you out of love? What season are you living in? Is it dark when you wake up in the morning? So many influences that happen in your mind. I think a lot of them sometimes are like our subconscious as well. You don't even know. And I've been through times where I found it difficult to create, but I don't buy this idea of like a chef is an artist. Probably why similar, I don't buy that a chef is a rock star. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we've dissed the beginning of the podcast and we've dissed the end. No, I'm not not dissing. I'm not dissing at all, but I think it's like, for me, like, getting into the mind and having a really honest and open conversation, which is something that probably I couldn't have done five, six years ago because I was so guarded and I felt whatever I put out there would be so highly judged. Where now I feel a lot more freer and I feel a lot more at peace with myself. And I genuinely believe that, listen, it's only my opinion. And my opinion is that we have to balance form and function and we have to deliver a service to people because ultimately that's what a restaurant is. And is there an element of artistry within our work? Yes, potentially, because I care about how things look aesthetically. But what's really important is what's behind that. And I, and I would say that to any young chef now that probably looks at our industry through the eyes of Instagram. Like I can't swear on this. So I've been really good as well. You've been very good at not swearing. No, but you know, like genuinely what you perceive is nine times out of 10, not the reality. And if you're a young chef and you want to be in this industry, please go and do the work. Work with chefs that you admire. Go and work in kitchens and restaurants that have a certain standard of performance and application and learn what food actually is. That relationship with food is so important beyond anything else. And truly understanding the seasons and produce and the love of it, that's really important. 
I'm going to put you straight now. So you started off before we recorded saying that you're going to be my least interesting podcast. <laughs> you're one of my favorite podcasts, Tom, and I really appreciate your warmth and your openness and your insight into your world. I can feel the rest. I can feel electricity in the air. I can feel it starting to get busier. I can feel you needing to get on with your day. What's on the cards for the rest of your day, Tom? I will do lunch service here at the restaurant and then... I am going to look at another restaurant site with my wider team. So designers, architects, builders, we're looking at something else in London. So I have a meeting there this afternoon. And then I have to pack because I fly to Miami in the morning because my team are already in Miami. Well, part of my team because we cook at most of the Formula Ones around the world now. So that must be a tough job, hey, but somebody's got to do it, hey? <laughs> it is, it's not as glamorous as it sounds, I, know, I can assure you. But it still sounds quite glamorous. Thank you, because I welcome. know how precious your time is. I know how busy you are. And you've just opened, you've got the renovation going, another project. It really has been lovely to chat to you. You've been listening to Chef Tom Sellers chatting to me from his new restaurant, Story Cellar, in Neil's Yard in London's Covent Garden. It's a beautiful spot, really chilled, delicious food and wine, and well worth a visit this summer. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you listen to yours. I'm speeding up because I definitely think he's got to go and cook now. I'll be back next week with another great guest. See you then. 